0: So there are two ways that I move towards Nibbana. And if I'm careful, I choose the second way. The first way is conventional thinking, and I'll be using conventional thinking to navigate my conventional life, where there's a calendar, and then there's a retreat, and there's a person I want to work with, and maybe that's where I'll move towards Nibbana, and I'm sort of still in my conventional thinking so Nibbana to move towards it is in time, far away, move towards it, make it closer to me by navigating time and space and a calendar. That first choice is, it might set me up to have the second choice. And the second choice is where I stop futurizing my well-being, my happiness, the better me I wanna be and I move towards Nibbana by relaxing into the present moment, by relaxing intimately and aware as best I can in that present moment. And that's as close as I can be in that moment to Nibbana. Any more, I would be striving and straining and pushing. That doesn't work. So sometimes it's, it's helpful, like, yeah, I w- I'm interested in. You know, developing my practice and I really want to work with somebody and I do have to kind of think in terms of schedules and it looks a little far away and that type of thinking can be functional and that type of thinking also can lead me to despair. It's like, ah, there's not enough time and it's far away and not in this life and wish I'd stayed a monk and all that type of thinking puts me nowhere closer to the neighborhood even of Nibbana it has me kind of consternate a lot. I move more closely to it when I see my mind trying to do that, and then I relax and say, let's not make it so far away. Maybe I can still make plans, but let's make plans closer to it, closer to a well-being that can be here and now, streaming along through experience. I'm really close to it. Because that's actually that's the doorway to which you actually end up having tangible contact with Nibbana. If you're striving for it, you're going to be agitating your heart and your mind too specific on what you're looking for. And often people report that that actually, even when they're close to it, there's this little striving, there's this little insistence that they get it. Like Sally was describing with Anuruddha last night, great accomplishments but um, not quite relaxed, not, try, not quite approaching the right way. And so the doorway into Nibbana from several classical maps is from the experience of equanimity while being um, tenderly awake and feeling the vastness of arising and passing. So arising and passing of experience and then uh, developing that so you're resting with a very global sense that there's really no security in an arising and passing field. It's always been arising and passing, it always will arise and pass, I'm just in a stream of experiences. At that moment, this is one of the classic doorways in to have a tangible experience of nirvana, equanimity with arising and passing. And if you're truly equanimous with the arising and passing of experience, one question to ask, is there anything other than this incredible stream, past, present and future, of nothing but arising and passing, arising and passing. If you get very mature in that stream of arising and passing, and you're content with it, you have true equanimity. Yes, I understand arising and passing, there's no getting out of it this is how it is, Um, I'm content and aware that all these constructed experiences I'm having, they have a beginning and end, they arise, they pass. So being able to stabilize your wakefulness with arising and passing. A mind that can stabilize in that field of arising and passing with contentment, that's equanimity and clear perspective might ask the question, is there anything other than constructive experiences that arise and pass? Is there anything other than just arising and passing? If the conditions are right, that question could turn the mind towards Nibbana. So you're not looking for Nibbana, you're just opening your attention beyond all these constructive experiences that will arise and pass. Brief ones, like the sound of a bird, or moderate ones, uh, things that we own, longer span things like the body, this building, all arising and passing. Is there anything that's actually not arising and passing? And then people, sometimes, uh, will be invited in to have this direct encounter with Nibbana and they'll stay there as long as their supportive conditions allow it. So some people get a blip, and then they're kind of right back into a rising, passing, and what was that? What was that a blip? For some people, they actually get to have a sustained experience of Nibbana. And for some people, the conditions are right, due to their paramis and their practice, and, and the conditions that they're in, that they can then opt in to have this experience, direct experience of Nibbana. And they get to really explore it. And it's not a f- thing that flew by your window, and was like, ah, it was black, what was that? Or, I don't know, there's, I had a blue stripe on it. But they're actually like, no, actually, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time within this experience. I'm able to look within the experience, I'm able to taste within the experience. The time that I had the most access to people who were doing that was at the Powak Meditation Center where people develop uh, phenomenal states of jhana and then use that to stabilize their hearts and minds in this arising and passing uh, stream of experience. And then from that they learn how to access nibbana. And then from that they learn to spend hours a day in the direct experience, one just to have the direct experience but to then to begin to explore what's the mind before, during, and after contact with Nibbana. I was at Upandita's monastery, there was a different ethos, which is the teacher, teacher holds the map, but they don't want you getting too perplexed and too heady about your whole trip, and so they just want you to adhere to the practices, which was noting all of your experiences, but they didn't want you to get too conceptual about it, they wanted you to note you were getting too conceptual about it. So the teacher held the map at Upandita's monastery. In Pao Xayata's monastery the map was huge, up in view, and you saw what little part you <laughs> had learned to navigate, and there was this vast expanse of experiences that had been mapped out. And Because I was ordained there, I was able to talk to uh, monks, nuns, and lay people about their practices, and people who had... Um, been very successful you know, with the jhana practices, recalling past lives, uh, witnessing this arising and passing very deeply, and then talk to them, what was your experience of Nibbana? And people were very open, um, especially the monastics. Monastics, as Sally was saying, can't talk to lay people about their attainments. It's one of, sort of the, the very careful, and they usually um, change the the context of what they're talking about. Even if they're talking about their personal experience, they'll distance themselves from it. But as another monastic, I got to hear many people talk about their experience of Nibbana. And one of the sweetest experiences was I was coming into Paok Sayadaw, and i going to give him a report of my practice. And these two Taiwanese nuns were there. Um, And I got to hear them dialogue with him for about, Twenty minutes in this really refined way about um, the many hours a day they were exploring Nibbana and what they were learning about nirvana, um, and it filled me with so much uh, happiness for them and also faith. Like my God, it's not it's not the sketchy thing that maybe is happening isn't happening. Like people are having definite contact with nirvana, as well as anybody can know from the outside, as well as anybody can really know from the inside. That's one of the things about it is. You, you don't really know if you've contacted nibana when you contact Nibbana. That's one of the things about it. You actually have to wait some time to see if it was Nibbana or something like Nibbana. There are certain things that are like Nibbana. So that's one of the things about this end goal is that some people have experiences and they're not even sure if that was the right one or not. It doesn't come with you know, engraved letters, nibana. <laughs> you are here with an arrow pointing. <clears throat> maybe what's interesting is to describe, it, is to try to describe a little bit about Ibana itself, and then what it means to, that, to come in contact with it, and then to come out of contact with it, um, to come in contact with it again. Often it's a doorway of great insight that gives maybe gives you a. a a rapid access to see Nibbana. Um, this is, we're talking about Nibbana much more as a specific experience, not the the broad experience of um, a mind free to greed, hatred and delusion. Uh, Nibbana gets used in different ways, different languages about it. So now we're talking about a much more specific experience that's unlike other experiences you've had up to that point, up to, that, up to your first contact with Nibbana you've only really had conscious contact with experiences that are transient. And even something might appear stable and trustworthy, all the, things, all the things you've ever really made contact with are transient. And either the thing itself is transient or your relationship mm-hmm. is transient, because there's so much change going on within us. We're shifting all the time, and that shifts all our relationships to other things over time. Here's a very strange image, but it works for me. Hopefully it'll entertain you. It's like you've been on um, a trampoline, and the whole world is jumping up and down on a trampoline. Everything else is going up and down on a trampoline. It's quite chaotic. But you learn to navigate all these things going up and down on a trampoline, arising and passing, including you. You've never gotten off the trampoline. And you develop some steadiness and practice, and you're like, okay, everything's going up and down. I'm getting used to it. It's kind of nauseating. It's unstable, but you seem to be stuck on the trampoline with everything else. Everything's going up and down. And you relax. And while everything's going up and down, you notice there's this one thing not going up and down. But you are. It's like, wait, what's that? What's that one thing not going up and down? What's that one thing going up and down? Well, that thing is not like everything else. It's not in this field of being rising and falling and rising and falling, there's this thing that seems to be out of that sphere. It's not um, confined like everything else to be constantly jumping up and down on this trampoline. There's something that's here, I can contact it, but it's not in this turbulence with everything else. So the doorway in to Nibbana, at least as I understood it, as it was talked a lot about in Burma, different monasteries, different practices, would go through this door of equanimity, resting in equanimity, not for or against anything that was happening, just seeing things clearly, understanding things clearly. And then quite suddenly, because it's it's a distinct juncture when your mind and heart connects to Nibbana, quite suddenly there's, n- there, there's nothing happening at your eye door. It's not like you're in a dark room where that's what you're taking in. The, di- the eye door is not active, the ear door is not active, the body door is not active, the nose and tongue door are not active. Concepts in the mind, that conceptual noise in the mind is not active. And so you go from this arising and passing stream of experience to suddenly something incredibly stable And that may be one of its most profound things that you are experiencing is this this, uh, unshaking stability, but it lacks any detail. It doesn't have a spatial detail. It doesn't have qualities that you're used to um, talking about or perceiving or comprehending other experiences, comparing other experiences. Suddenly all the things, all the doors that you've known the world through are not active and there's this contact with something quite stable. You have contact with that Nibbanic element, this conscious experience. Your, Your mind, which is coming and going, is having contact And the contact is predominated by something that is not arising and passing. But it doesn't, and again, that's the most profound uh, aspect of it, is its stability, but it lacks detail, it lacks other types of detail. You're having, it's it's almost a nothingness, but it feels stable. And the intuition on it is that it's stable. The intuition, even a quick contact with it, your heart and mind know this, whatever I've just contacted was not made, it didn't have a beginning, doesn't have an end, those questions don't really apply to what I just had contact with. If you get to visit it more you can actually try to feel out more nuances of Nibbana and uh, Sally pointed to a list where there are all these different words to describe it, the deathless, the unconstructed. Um, I had the list with me, you would see that there are many lists for Nibbana and those nuances of Nibbana might, might come out. But to go from a world where everything's arising and passing quite quickly, to contact with something that uh, is made of stability, it's made of reliability, it's something unchanging, with that, there also is this, this incredible relief. It's as if there's been vibration your whole life, and you've learned to calm it down, and even meditative stage, you're like, wow, it's so much more calm than it's ever been. But in that moment, there is a release of, um, of any type of restless stimulation. It's the most perfect peace. It's the most perfect rest uh, that your mind has ever known. And so a couple of things happen quickly in that. There's, There's touching something that is not constructed, is not made, touching something that's featureless, and feeling this wash of relief. Another analogy is sort of being um, swimming on a windy lake where there's a lot of waves. It's very turbulent, and you're getting closer and closer to shore. And you put your foot down, but you can't quite reach it. And you're tired, and you're and and you keep swimming. And at some point, you actually put your foot down and you touch a rock, and you put your weight on it, and you're just taken out of the frothy, windy water because now you're actually on something stable. And there's this very reassuring, you're, not, you're no longer out in the frothy sea. You're actually safe. There's a safety, ease, quiet. And then the conditions shift. You can only be in contact with it for so long at that time. And your mind takes up again the stream of arising and passing experiences. So you're in the neighborhood of Nibbana, you got quite close to it. That's the equanimity. You made direct contact with it, and that can only happen for as long as the conditions support it. And then you come back right outside the door, right outside of contact, back into equanimity. And then equanimity might begin to further erode as the conditions supporting equanimity uh, decline. So you might feel impatience come in, you might feel excitement come in, you might feel bafflement and a whole flood of intellectualization. What was that? how do I get back there? And all of a sudden you're not even an equanimous anymore, you're kind of obsessed about it, and trying to get back there, and you're trying too hard, and all of a sudden you're back into that, that mind, that mind stream, but you definitely made contact with something. That ends up having impact, and it's really the impact that's more important for, in, in the terms of our own liberation, than again trying to get, into, well, what was it that you were nearby, that you made contact, and the shifts that happened afterwards have so much more to say about your um, lack of suffering and future orientation than trying to hammer out and puzzle something that's very hard to describe, because it lacks details that our conventional mind would use to describe it. Going back into the stream, of things arising and passing. Because that's all you've ever known are things arising and passing. And because all you've ever known is a slightly restless mind that knew varying degrees of peace, you now have a reference point outside of all that fluctuation. Because you have a reference point outside of all the fluctuations of experience, you then come back into the stream of experience and you can see it more clearly. It's like getting very used to your hometown, traveling to a foreign country, and then coming back. Nothing has changed, but you have—you can see things because you just stepped out. You stepped radically out, so you step radically in. Even though all this arising and passing experience um, hasn't changed much, everything's still jumping up and down the trampoline, you're back on the trampoline. But you can now, you have an extra clarity, you have an extra reference point to see the consequences, like wow, when this is all that I knew, arising and passing experiences, that's all I kind of shot for, that's all I really, that's the best I could do is kind of be at peace with all this turbulence. But now I see even more clear the consequences of being in all this arising and passing. The consequences of being constantly agitated by things coming and going. And there's really no security, there's really no refuge in this fluctuating field. And I know what a ref I know what a true refuge feels like. And so for that, I am no, I you, you have more orientation to not cling and crave Because if all you've known is arising and passing, it's like, yeah, you're not going to be here forever, but I'm going to cling to you anyhow, because that's as good as it gets, right? Or I'm still trying to find happiness, but like everything comes and goes. When you touch a real refuge like Nibbana, and then you come back into the stream of experience, that is something that transforms you both immediately, because you have this experience, this reference point, this understanding, but it starts to really inform you over time. And this is the way that contact with Nibbana um, begins to change your mindstream. Uh, sometimes you can say some things happen immediately, but some things happen over years afterwards because you now have a reference point outside of things affected by uh, rising and passing, things that can't really satisfy you, the satisfaction that you're looking for, you realize you can't get in the fluctuating world, but you could get more than you ever imagined in something that doesn't change, in something that is stable, (coughs) something that's truly stable. You fall in love and you hope maybe this next relationship could be the stable one, this next relationship could be the one that feeds you. And then to realize the next relationship is made up of two humans, or more humans, or more species. But you realize it's, it's got the same constraints around it, the same insecurities, and maybe it could be better than previous ones because you've learned more, but you're still trying to find happiness in a world where everything's fluctuating, and unpredictably fluctuating. And the thing about Nibbana is it's not unpredictable, it's not fluctuating, It's not going to turn on you. It's not going to um, be radically different tomorrow. It's the same unique, unchanging experience. So again, that gives you an orientation. And that keeps on affecting you. And there's a whole stream that happens after contact with nibbana in how it reorients you towards being in samsara, being in all this fluctuation. Another immediate thing happens that uh, Sally talked about last night is you realize, um, so gonna, well, you realize this path actually worked in trying to give you um, clarity and trying to give you a relief from your seeking. You actually contacted something, and you realize the path actually helped do that. In fact, if, without the path, you wouldn't have had that experience. <clears throat> so. A couple of simple examples come to mind, where um, I live out in a rural area past uh, Berkeley and Oakland. and When people come to my house, there's often, the first time they come there's often a lot of doubt that they're actually getting closer to my house, because they're getting further and further away from houses, and then it's very rural. This kind of rolling hills, there's no signs that there's a community anywhere near. First time I went out there, I was like, I'm definitely not on the right track, because just more cows, more reservoirs, more, you know, where are the houses going to be? And they start seeing some houses, like, oh, okay, uh, maybe I'm in the right neighborhood, but maybe not. Like, I'm not sure yet that this is where, I, you know, first time I came out, this is where the house is, or if you're visiting, this is where Temple lives. And he says, he gave me the directions, I'm following them, but... God, then you see, like, do not enter signs from my neighbors. And it's like, oh, it's not, how safe is this neighborhood? And, and then you actually turn in my driveway, and it's like, God, I really hope this is it. And you see me walk out the house. Like, oh, great. this is those directions did work, and there's this great relief. Like, oh, all that work I was doing did get me to the right place. As opposed to, I'm still, I'm, ha- I'm having faith, but it hasn't been totally validated yet. So now I've put out some Tibetan flags so that people as they get closer are like, this is much more likely the house (laughs) than uh, some of the other houses in my neighborhood. So in that contact with Nibbana, you realize uh, that the teachings and all the trainings and your rough understandings of them, enough to keep doing them, landed you in contact with Nibbana a deeper peace than you've ever known, coming out of it a deeper clarity and perspective than you've known. That, again, starts orienting, and it keeps on teaching you, not that you keep making contact with Nibbana necessarily, but that you don't forget that reference point, and so it starts to reorient um, how much peace and security you're looking for in a world that's constantly arising and passing. And there's a, there's a lot of transformation that can happen over weeks, months, and years, just from that, that first contact, let alone if you have the paramis and the capacity to keep making contact with Nibbana. So you get this faith in the path, you get orientation in the path. Um, it's not really until <clears throat> your first contact with Nibbana that the background hum and vibration of self has ceased. And so you can get pretty quiet in jhanas, you can get pretty quiet in life where like, yeah, I'm not dominated by the really gross level of self. But there's still a hum of I am, there's still a hum of self-reference, even very deep states of concentration. This is, I think, one of the Buddha's insights. Um, When he went into those deep states of concentration, he saw that they were only as good as you were when you were in them. But there was still an unexamined hum of a witness, a noun-oriented witness, cruising along, and no way to kind of unearth it, no way to kind of get out from under it, because it was just so consistent, this very steady, firm, quiet, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. When you make contact with nibbana, that "I am" noise in the background ceases. And it's like getting used to the sound of a of a generator going off in your neighborhood, and you just get used to it, and then it stops, and you're like, "Oh my god, wow! I've gotten used to that." And it starts up again, like, "Oh, that's that's coarse. I can now hear it again." So when you make contact with nibbana and then come out of contact with nibbana, you can finally have perspective on, how, on this deep orientation towards I am, this deep orientation towards self, which is another reason, as Sally was describing, stream enters lose that, having never been able to question this constant I am. It can't arise when in contact with Nibbana. So then you also learn about yourself and what that your stream of conditions, even this I AM that was giving you a little sense of security as you flowed along through fluctuating experiences, it was so steady in the background and maybe so unconsciously experienced that that steady I AM um, carries along. You don't have it and then as you come out of your contact with Nibbana, you come back into experiences you can now taste it, and you can taste the consequences. It's like, uh, if you don't brush your teeth, and then you do brush your teeth, and then you don't brush your teeth again, it's like, ah, I can, I'm aware of the consequences of not brushing my teeth. I'm aware of the consequences of this I am, I am, I am, this burden, and I get the sense that it's trying to help, trying to give me some orientation, but if I rigidify or solidify it all around this I aming of the mind, <clears throat> That's where everything starts to congeal and get sticky. And the nice thing about that first contact with Nibbana is I realized that I am-ness is optional. It's constructed, it's part of the constructed fluctuating field. And so even though it comes back and it becomes quite back, it becomes quite steady again, you have perspective on it like you've never had before. So, as okay. Sally said, doubt has removed because you've made contact and you've felt a peace that really is unparalleled. It's not slightly better than ice cream. It's not slightly better than gazing into the eyes of your child or lover. It's not slightly better than the best sunset. It's a profound leap better than experiences you've had before in terms of better, in terms of it, the thoroughness of the peace and satisfaction So, it removes uh, doubt, the path works. It finally unplugs you from this monotone background I aming" that's happening consciously or unconsciously. And it also teaches you, as Sally was saying, that um, all the conventions that you've been using trying to stabilize your happiness, you realize the ones that really do work and the ones that don't. Because the ones that actually help you get closer to nirvana the neighborhood of it or that contact or whatever seems worth doing after that is really belongs in the neighborhood of nirvana taking care of people you care about that belongs there taking care of yourself you know quieting yourself not getting involved in really uh, complicated um, arguments with people we are lashing out it just strips away that That's so far from this experience. So whatever habits I had, whatever conventions I had, whatever I had been doing to try to make myself happy, it's very clarifying on what what truly helps and what doesn't. And it keeps on clarifying those things. So as you're doing habits and patterns, you wake up to them. It's like, this actually moves me no closer to really deep happiness. I was doing it before because my parents taught me or whatever, but I I was just doing it it actually doesn't help in this awakening process. Or this habit and pattern actually is what draws me further from that experience. And I was just doing it because it was a convention. So certain conventions and habits and practices drop away. And other habits and practices get drawn up because you can see that they are supportive towards what helped you have this contact with Nibbana and what you feel like doing after you've had contact with Nibbana. That transformation, the towards contact and away, is so much more important to what we actually need to be focusing on and cultivating than trying to get in there where language goes, is hard to go on this what is this Nibbana experience. I mean, the last thing I'll say, and we can open up for some questions um, or any comments you want to make, is that. <clears throat> there's a whole bunch of equanimity right next to many doors to Nibbāna from our Theravadan tradition. So equanimity has this, um, this sense of that, that maybe may be the easiest way to have these connected points to this um, profound feel, experience of having Nibbāna, or contact with Nibbāna. But then you realize, just out from equanimity, there are other beautiful qualities that are not in contradiction with Nibbana. In fact, some of the contradictions have been worked out as your clarity grows. And then what is loving-kindness can grow out of that contact with Nibbana? Loving-kindness that's not got this I aming kind of that's hard to remove. Loving-kindness as a parami, it may not be right up against like profound, uh, really radiant loving-kindness may not be right up against this experience of Nibbana. But it definitely lives in the neighborhood of Nibbana. So do all the other paramis. And so Nibbana is quite a a still, featureless, quiet experience. And for that you might imagine that all the other passions of life that are more demonstrative, service, loving-kindness, compassion, Um, courageous efforts, Um, they're not antagonistic to the experience. They get cleaned up and they belong around, even if they're not right next to the access point to Nibbana. They get cleaned up and they're actually a part of the the culture um, around Nibbana. I hope hope that that metaphor works well um, and is translating, because I have found that as my heart has gotten freer on the path, Um, and that a certain type of quietude is a part of how the path matures. Not all things have to get quiet. Not all things have to resolve into the quietude. And even though the nibbana is a very quiet experience, stepping out from nibbana back into the flow of the world, you can have quite beautiful love, uh, rise up through your being. And it's not part of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so there are all these beautiful qualities that end up thriving, even as you make contact with something quite quiet. And I want to I want to keep those nearby because sometimes um, they seem to start to seem like they're, they're further experiences from Nibbana and therefore maybe not as uh, exalted as this Nibbana experience. And then maybe the very last thing to say is that describing this makes it might make it sound like, that's so hard to achieve, and then we've sort of gone back out into the, that'll never happen to me, or wow, that sounds so, like only some people get to have that. And then if your mind's doing that, it's that conventional way of putting it far away. And the way to get closer to it is really to take a breath. Remember you have a body. See if a breath can be satisfying. Not in any incredible way, but enough for that moment that, at times, simply breathing is enough. That again, that's the heading that gets us closer to this uh, Nibbana experience. And when we emerge from Nibbana, that's often what it feels like. A breath is enough, a bird call is enough. Whatever is happening in that moment uh, is enough. Let's take a moment just to breathe in a bit, breathe out, and settle a bit. And then we have a few minutes if, um, if there are any uh, questions or comments uh, before we wrap up for the morning.
1: i welcoming any of the voices that may take a few minutes to speak, to, to emerge as well. So you can take care of each other that way.
2: I have a question about jhana. <laughs> if you're if you're having if you're experiencing jhana, your mind and body are very still. Um, I'm not sure whether I heard you say that 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 is a neighborhood experience or can put you in the neighborhood. How is it? Can you trans? Can you? Um, can you transition into the neighborhood and then into nirvana from the jhana experience?
0: The way I would put it is that <clears throat> the territory of jhana is a neighborhood next to the neighborhood of nirvana, Because um, jhana, even though it's quite detached from the world, it's quite balanced within, quite content with simple things, it's, um, it's resting upon stability, the stability of experience. But that stability of experience is still made of things arising and passing. But what you're really turning into is, is this hom- homogenous stability. You then have to translate, come out of jhana, and start turning your heart and mind towards um, the Vipassana world, not the samadhi world, but the vipassana world of seeing arising and passing, or really exploring the nature of awareness itself, all the sort of more vipassana practices. So there would sort of be... But there are two neighborhoods that get along. Uh, people go back and forth between them. There's no conflict between them. But um, they are they have some, enough distinction about them uh, that they are similar, but not, um, not overlapping.
2: One would think that um, having the mind stable and calm in the jhana experience would then help you, I guess, move into the neighborhood, to the neighborhood. <laughs> but one yeah. could use jhana to calm the mind in a way which yeah. could help you move move over.
0: Yeah, and that <clears throat> that's sort of... If, if you have the parami is for samadhi, for deep concentration, or you train for it. Um, teachers like Ayakema would say, it's much easier to do the vipassana that leads to deep freedom, if you first come to the jhanas. If you, so to, to, And that, that may or may not be true for everybody. It's not true for the people who don't have, their minds don't work well in that type of samadhi, jhana, quietude but they might get there through investigation. So some people without a lot of that hallmark jhana experience are still quite steady investigators and find that they can survive in the vipassana world without it being too baffling. And they don't need something like samadhi, to um, jhana samadhi, to back them up so they can stabilize their vipassana. Some people have the paramis where they can destabilize their vipassana. And then they say, well, why would I go all the way over to this neighborhood to come back here when actually I, I, I can get pretty deep in myself? Um, again, I'm not overstretching the analogy. But for a lot of people, especially for lifers, and hopefully you guys are lifers, uh, spending some time developing samadhi to whatever degree we can is very helpful to supporting uh, the pasana insight practice. And it's why it's uh, talked about a lot, um, the jhana practices, why right concentration, right, samadhi is one of the eight. So the eightfold. It really does have the eightfold path. It is supportive, but uh, it's not necessarily for everybody. And there is a, you do need a, from the way I understand it, there is a transition, there are transitional practices that take you from jhana practice into vipassana practice. Richard Schenkman, when I taught with him once, um, he said, "No, they're they're the same thing. You just keep doing the same practice, and it begins. Um, it gives, um, one tree gives you pears and apples, mm-hmm. and so this one practice produces insights, and it produces deeper concentration, and it produces insights. My training has always has been, you produce, you do practices that are supportive of jhana, and there are different practices that are supportive of vipassana." There was a question right here. Right here and then back there. Let's go here first, Patala.
2: It's on? So, um, you mentioned a lot, I don't know if I missed it, what the seven factors of enlightenment, Mm -hmm. are they um, tools? To get to nirvana are it's each of the factor a little bit of nirvana and also um, rapture and nirvana mm. nirvana is it the same
0: rapture and Nirvana are they the same Um, <coughs> I can't be too definitive, so I'm only going to be able to talk from my experiences and people I know and the schools of Buddhism that I worked in. And there are differences in different schools, so I need to kind of predicate that. The rapture around Nibbana is not the rapture that's uplifting or stimulating. What's amazing about Nibbana is actually how is how uh, um, sort of quiet and steady it is, and so that the relief that comes is a little bit more. There's the the happiness that comes when I walk into a room full of people I love and they all say "Hey!" and that's like ah, this is great, and there's a the relief when I get into a hot bath when I'm tired. Ivana is a little bit more like oh, versus yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, and then the factors of awakening are are tools you could say for um, wisdom for Vipassana practice, so that we can um, break through some of the 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 patterns in our mind that are quite tenacious and we're kind of in a holding pattern but we start to really develop investigation, courage, delight, tranquility, concentration and equanimity and mindfulness when those all are well developed and then they they harmonize those are moments often where we'll have epiphanies that jump out of our conventional view and see things from a new light And most of us are just happy enough to have these epiphanies. Um, The Buddha was able to explore what, what factors are necessary for epiphanies, what factors are necessary for a change in perspective. That's not just a, oh, I can see that point of view, but then it goes away. Like what actually shifts our perspective and makes it hard to go back to an old perspective that epiphany, that insight, what's likely to generate that are these seven factors um, harmonizing at the same time. A delighted investigation that's courageous, but it happens in also a sense of tranquility and focus and equanimity. And then seeing things, that's what causes uh, insights.
1: Hi, my name's Elisa. And, um, I just want to express my appreciation um, for your offering the guided meditation this morning uh, with the Dharma talks um, about freedom, and freedom no matter what, and um, the factors of awakening, even though I, I found them all very interesting and illuminating. I could see my striving and my frustration rising. Mm. And um, before you offered the guided meditation, I was going to ask you, <laughs> um, ask one of the teachers if you'd be willing to you know, guide us in a meditation because I, I could feel um, it, the, the pain, the suffering around trying to grasp and understand mm. all that has has been shared, um, just feeling really saturated intellectually um, with all these you know, phenomena, uh, concepts. And during the sit this morning, um, I was able to drop into a place, a real place of sweetness and simplicity, of just being with the moment. And I so appreciate your very gentle and spacious uh, scaffold, uh, scaffolding that allowed me to go there. Yeah. Um, in the world that we live in with um, the rapid acceleration of technology, mm. the proliferation of choices in every realm of life, mm. the wars and the rumors of wars, um, hatred and intolerance, political strife and turmoil, um, the thought of being able to experience awakening and enlightenment um, in this world, uh, just hearing a Dharma talk seems like so so unimaginable to me. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, hearing, you know, Sally's talk and you're talking about uh, the beings do, during Buddha's time that reached awakening um, just from hearing a Dharma talk is mm. like mind, mind-blowing to me. Mm. Um, and I'm wondering if hearing the Dharma talk, hearing a Dharma talk by an awakened being like the Buddha had something to do with it, like the relational transmission, not just the Dharma talk, the content of it, but the relational transmission, being in the presence of an awakened being. Mm. Um, uh, yeah,
0: <clears throat> that would be my speculation. That uh, he was talking in in a culture that um, already valued living in the neighborhood of nibbana. Not everybody did, but there were already spiritual traditions that had people valuing um, a restful mind, a spacious mind. Um, their culture at the time already put people who were oriented towards peace um, above uh, kings and queens and politicians and wealthy people. so they they had their value system such that uh, uh, most people were oriented towards um, honoring the free heart and mind, and the teachings around a free heart and mind. Um, And the Buddha taught in a language that everybody spoke at the time. He's also a Buddha, so it's quite impressive. And one of the impressive things about him is he he seemed to be very good at gauging his audience and being able to offer people um, what was in reach for their next step. And sometimes that was just gentle encouragement to keep going. And any more actually would not have been useful. And sometimes he sees somebody is ready and he actually walks someone through quite a chain of guided reflections. And the conditions are right for them to um, fully awaken or partially awaken. Um, <clears throat> so he's a quite skillful teacher, teaching at a time in a culture that um, was ready to hear what he had to say. Um, And our conditions are different. Our conditions are um, not as supportive. Um, And every now and then again, my mind will slide into it. Whenever I feel like freedom is far away, not doable, and I start to get discouraged, I now have a, like a red flag that just like, watch out for dependent origination. Watch out because you're putting your freedom very far away. You're putting the well-being of people far away. We don't know about tomorrow. That thinking may actually not be helpful. It's like yeah, but it seems so true. I have this. My own mind is quite strange to me, and so it's, it's one of its good sides is when it's entertaining me, <laughs> when it's funny, but. This last political season, my mind has said, I get Lao Tzu wanting to walk out into the desert and saying, humanity, I just give up. Like, I, and luckily it's like, I'm gonna give you 88 poems, and then by the mythology of Lao Tzu, it's like, you guys are unteachable, so here's 88 poems, you're you're on your own. (laughs) I'm walking out into the desert because I've had it with you all. (laughs) And there are times that, in this political season there I was like I get it I really get it but then that's not that that mind state is a certain exasperation a certain fatigue and I I notice even though it feels true down below it I care that caring is touching a clinging I can't care on that level and have it hurt this much so I'm getting frustrated or these other modes are coming in but I, I try to be careful of that um because, it's just, one, it's just depressing. Two, it's not accurate. And some day later, it was just a funk and I came out of it. And I was like, no, I'm not going to walk out of the desert. And I probably couldn't write 88 quality poems. So <laughs> let's, let's keep working on my own poems so I could do that one day. But there again, uh, Nibbana down the road is one way of conceiving of it. And that might be one way we organize our aspirations. But because you're all practitioners, there's also, if you can remember, even in traffic, even in hard circumstances, there's also, I could move towards Nibbana by remembering I have a body. I'm not moving into Nibbana, but I'm moving towards it. I have a body, ah, right? This body is breathing, right? this rage cycle I'm in is really lost. No, I should not hurt somebody, right? And this, like, cooling off is that more broad sense of nibbana the cooling off of the heart, mind, and body that has started to get really entangled in something and everything it does further entangles it. And then you learn these intuitive ways to kind of not suppress it because that's not the best, but to kind of how do you healthfully co- coax yourself out of your own frustration, uh, disappointment, back to where you're functional? Because there might be something functional about your frustration it might point at things that need attention. But if you're really starting to feel like this isn't doable, I give up. Um, chances are there's there's too much pain in the mind is protecting itself. Um, so, anyways, like. Nibbana as a neighborhood when next time I can go to Spirit Rock, or in my community, um, or right here, right now, moving closer to it, moving closer into that, easing off on the greed, hatred, delusion in my system, encouraging people around me to do the same. That's so much more accessible and so much more of how Nibbana is really accessed and cultivated our relationship to it then futurizing it. Thank you. We have to unfortunately stop at this point for the schedule of the day. So thank you for your interest and thank you for this morning. I'd like to do for your, um, okay, before we do home groups, I'm gonna just see the question, but let's do announcements first. Thank you for listening.